0: Welcome to Adapt Nation, the podcast that dives into all things self optimization and self discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katsazi, and today we are talking to Menel Henselmans, a distinguished and highly regarded leader in the nutrition and exercise sciences space. I was so, so excited to finally get Menel on the mics as I've been pursuing him for over a year. And he is one of the very few voices in muscle building and fat loss that speaks from a truly evidence-based standpoint. He's not dogmatic and he has walked the walk in terms of physique. Mano is known for many things, including his support of the sciences, his enviable physique and world-class coaching service. But the biggies are most probably his positions on training volume, training frequency, and training recovery to maximize muscle growth. So for that reason, we dedicated this entire interview to Menno, providing us with his definitive position on optimal weight training programming design for you, me, and every other non-competing gym goer who just wants to look good naked. We'll cover Menno's thoughts on consistency, training volume, progressive overload, rep ranges, intensiveness, training to failure, recovery, frequency, periodization, and a few other things too. And for the guys who don't know much about Menno yet, we do get things started with a brief plotted history of his career and where he focuses his time nowadays. And as always, guys, full show notes are linked to within the podcast app and you can leave your comments and questions by following that link too, which goes straight to adaptnation.io. I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy this one. And if you do, please do me a massive favor and provide us with a short five-star review in your podcast app. You have no idea just how important this is to me personally, as well as helping this show be more easily discovered by people just like you. Okay, that's enough of the preamble. Let's get straight into it. We have Menno Henselmans on his definitive guide to weight training program design. Enjoy. nation. Meno, oh my man, I am absolutely chuffed to bits that I finally got you on the adaptation Nation podcast. Welcome, my pleasure, Steve. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's um, you've been you've been in my sight for at least a year. Um, you you gently put me off about a year ago. Said grow your audience, you know, establish your business, which I've done, and we've had some fantastic guests on over the last year. I mm-hmm. think we're now ready for the big guns. Nice. Let's do it. <laughs> so um, maybe, well, look, I, I know who you are, man. I've been following you for a couple of years now. Um, I love your evidence-based approach to uh, understanding hypertrophy, muscle building, and fat loss. Um, but maybe you can just give the audience, the guys that aren't so familiar with your work, a sense of maybe your current credentials and maybe a, a brief plotted history as to how you have become uh, the man you are and the kind of work you do today.
1: Mm -hmm. Sure. I started off working as a business consultant and my education was originally mostly in uh, behavioral economics and statistics. And uh, as a business consultant, my specialty was advanced statistical data analysis. And that was all fine, but it wasn't really my passion. It was more the career path that your parents wanted you and not what you truly are passionate about. And that made me switch to fitness, which was a gradual process. But um, Let's fast forward. I started coaching people because um, started, people started asking me for that. And I thought, okay, uh, I can try this. I, I think I know uh, quite a bit about nutrition and exercise science now. I've been uh, lifting myself since 13 years old. And generally, I have a few hobbies. And the ones that I uh, have, I'm, I dive in fully. And over time, people started asking me, okay, so how do you get these kind of client results? How do you coach people? And then I set up my PT courses have been doing really well and are available in english dutch spanish french uh, and german so that's going uh, very well and uh basically I, I apply in my learnings not just my own experience i think that's uh, very secondary but mostly the exercise science and a very uh, analytical approach to finding out what what the truth is and how we should train and diet because there is a lot of da- data on this and what's now uh Popularly called uh, evidence-based fitness, uh, you could say I was one of the one of the first that was on that uh, uh, in that category, and I, I think that's definitely the way forward for not just fitness but everything else in life. You go by data, you go by objective facts, and you trust in those, and you use your personal anecdotes, experience, and feelings uh, more secondarily. You know, training is both art and science in the end. So you need to fill in the gaps with your own experience, customize programs to the individual, use what you've learned, not just uh, in books, but also in practice. But especially as a starting point, I think uh, exercise science and nutritional sciences provide by far the most objective data um, that allows us to say uh, formally what the state of nature is and how the human body works. And based on that, we can design optimal training programs for strength development, muscle hypertrophy, and fat loss and specifically you menno
0: and and your team how are you contributing to the evidence based space of um, muscle building generally have you got a, have you got a research kind of unit are you, are you involving yourself in you know meta analyses or or kind of clinical research or observational um, studies
1: mm-hmm. uh, i mean i spent most of my time with uh, relatively popular science you could say and uh, my my phd courses which are semi-formal, you know, it has to be uh, accessible to uh, to lay individuals as well. But I also spend a lot of my own uh, time, uh, not as not necessarily business-wise because I don't earn any money from it. Uh, I spend a lot of my own money on it, actually, on doing uh, exercise and nutrition sciences, collaborating on meta-analyses, uh, worked with Brad Schoenfeld uh, on a couple papers, uh, the latest meta-analysis on how much protein you need, for example, for maximum muscle growth. I was part of that. The latest rest interval on um, or the latest review paper on what the best rest interval is for muscle growth it was also an offer of that. And we've got a c- couple nice other studies in the making. I collaborate with various universities for that and my own research team. Um, but like I said, we're not an official institute. That's more uh, a work of passion because we're, you know, we're not, uh, I'm not a, a full-time professor at a university, so I don't get paid for that. I have to pay for it myself. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, a labor of love. And you you seem to be
0: pretty well respected, Menno. And I, I know there's you know protagonists such as I don't know like Lane Norton et cetera who who like to kind of rip into most people, um, but he leaves you alone, as far as I can tell, at least anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you're you're well respected, um, not particularly dogmatic, uh, and I think it's because of your your kind of evidence first approach. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how you've navigated not getting you know thrown under the bus by? Your peers, because it, it it does seem to be a fairly dog eat dog industry, and um, you say one thing out of turn, and you you get called a zealot, and you know it, it's also highly anecdotal. I think the space of muscle building, right, because it is mm-hmm. personal experience It comes down to a lot, at least anyway. At least my 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 what I see of the uh, of this space is we, we still there's so much to learn, and it's so hard to truly. You know, um, isolate one variable, uh, and we're also unique. So how how have you not <laughs> how have you not got attacks over the last few years? Because um, mm-hmm. most people do.
1: I mean, I've been attacked by Loud McDonalds, but uh, who hasn't? You know. So um, I think there's a few uh, key approaches to maintain uh, respect and a general good reputation uh, that that I employ. First is uh, I don't attack many people. Like there's a lot of offers that. I only do it when I think someone is actively causing malice or, you know, hurting people with their advice. Then I may intervene, uh, but always professionally, um, except for Lal. I can't, I can't help poking at Lal. <laughs> but um, I, th- I think that's important, you know, that you know, there are a couple of people who make their name uh, sort of debunking others and picking fights. And you may get popular that way, but you won't get respected. And I think it's not a very good business approach. I think also uh, what a lot of offers do that do get attacked often is that they spend a lot of time commenting on others. And I don't do that much. I mostly focus my efforts on producing my own content. And I'm, I'm mostly active on my own Facebook page, my own Instagram page. I put out a lot of free content there. And, you know, I don't, um, I don't go picking fights if I think there's uh, something that a lot of authors are saying, then I, I will attack the ID. And I won't say, you know, this guy is saying this. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And in debates, I've had a lot of debates, uh, intense debates with uh, Eric Helms, Greg Knuckles, Brad Schoenfeld, Alan Aragon. Uh, so, uh, you know, I've, I've debated pretty much every respectable name in the industry, probably at some point. And I think the the key is that we can get along because for one, you're just a nice human being. You know, if uh, like with Mike Israel, a lot of people think we're, we're constantly at each other's throats, but, you know, we, we may disagree over how best to train your biceps, but, you know, we have so many life philosophies in common. If you talk, for example, politics or overall life goals with us, we, we're just, we're constantly nodding. You know, we share a lot of uh, beliefs and much more fundamental and important things than how many sets of curls do you do per week to maximize growth for your guns, you know? So I think if you can just, uh, maintain that perspective, and you always side with the truth. For example, you're willing to admit to being wrong, and willing to admit that this is what the evidence is. That's what you can state in a debate. For example, while well, this is the current evidence, this is how I interpret this, and therefore I recommend this. And as long as you have a reasonable approach, then, then nobody can really hurt you because you know worst-case scenario, well, you're wrong, and then you have to change your stance. Um, which which every rational person should do uh, as long as when there's new data available because, you know, no one's uh, omniscient. You never know exactly what's uh, going to come. I think I have a pretty good track record in terms of predicting evidence, but there's always new stuff that you don't expect 100%. It's simply impossible, uh, revolutionary new findings and like.
0: Mm. And I think you've done a great job of doing that. I also think that, I think there's still so much we haven't yet uncovered when it comes to the art of bodybuilding and muscle development. And we need to lean on science, the science that we do have, but we also need to appreciate the science that we do have isn't necessarily perfect. And there's still mm-hmm. a lot more that we need to do. And there's so much nuance. And in the absence of unequivocal data, uh, we kind of need to go on a few hunches. We do need to respect some of the bro science to some degree. And we do need to respect some of the anecdote. Um, do you have any any perspective on that? Because I, I'd love it to be that we've we've solved for every question we have in regards to building muscle, but it, it feels like we're still quite away from yeah being conclusive around all the variables and exactly what it takes.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, we definitely have the big picture, like training volume, energy balance; those are really big factors. Protein intake, uh, you're just having to train hard enough reaching a cer- certain volume you know those are those are very fundamental things and then in the fine tuning optimization there is definitely a lot of research uh, that we still need because exercise science and nutritional science are relatively new fields and also very small fields mm. compared to say the psychological sciences and then definitely we have to fill in we have to fill in the gaps with our own personal experience uh, and the like basically an analogy that I like to use is that scientific data is like uncovering a puzzle and you you when you have one study, you know, you have one piece of the puzzle. And as you get more data, you get more pieces. And you know, because I, I use this analogy when someone said, Well, I feel like science zigzags a lot. There's a lot of findings that, you know, now eggs are good, now eggs are bad. And it's really not like that. You know, you may get that impression from, from following the media, for example. But if you look at scientific consensus, it usually moves in one direction or it makes at most one twist it's 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 almost never the case that there is a true zigzag like all researchers believed a and then 10 years later they all believe b and then 10 years later again they're all back to believing a you know that, that almost never happens so it's basically as you're uncovering more pieces of the puzzle the, the picture becomes more clear and it becomes more and more uh, established and less likely that the, the final picture that you're going to see is uh, decidedly different than what you're seeing now
0: So I think this is a great, um, great point in which to kind of jump off and talk about the topic I was hoping we can talk about, Menno. So Mm -hmm. um, I know that you've written extensively and you've spoken extensively about training volume, uh, recovery, uh, really in the context of maximizing hypertrophy benefit from training. Um, Mm -hmm. And as I've kind of like set the stage, uh, I don't think we can be absolutely definitive on everything we're going to say but at the same time you there are these big rocks and we there has been some good science over the last few years to draw some reasonable conclusions so i'd love for the audience to hear you know to the best of your ability your definitive guide on how to program for maximizing hypertrophy hypertrophy benefit where we're trying to maximize our net anabolic effect we're trying to ensure we get sufficient recovery whilst minimising overtraining. And as context, we've had some great guests on, such as Paul Carter, Christian Thibodeau, um, just recently Joe DeFranco, and several others. And they all have their own different perspectives. I think there's some kind of universal alignment across all of these folk, but I also see that there are some fairly wild differences in what they believe is the most important thing when you get in the gym. So I'd love to hear mm-hmm. what your most important things are across or well, I, I don't know maybe we can do it this way maybe i can kind of hit you with the the elements of consistency uh, frequency intensiveness and get your your perspective we don't need to go super into the weeds meno uh, i know we don't necessarily have the time to do that anyway but yeah let's start from the top let's talk about consistency and for me meno and and please um correct me if i if i'm getting this wrong but for me consistency or training consistency is about two things it's about how, how frequently are you participating in the same exercise to perfect it, develop it, and actually build strength in that given exercise for that muscle group. And then it's the long-term training commitment of just showing up day after day, week after week, year after year. How important is consistency considering those two aspects of it?
1: Yeah, consistency is one of those things that's theoretically not super important, but in practice very very important so theoretically there have been a couple uh, studies recently for example that looked at the effect of varying up your program pretty much randomly in terms of uh, rest intervals training volume uh, exercise selection versus keeping it all constant and there is a bit of a trend in favor of consistency because there are a couple downsides with excess variation uh, that we can go into in a bit but mostly they find you know it's not it's not a major difference the most important thing is, is going back to your very first question most important thing definitely i think in evidence based science there is, there is there is zero contention that training volume is the most important variable of any training program just like energy balance is the most important variable of any nutritional program and how you fill in that volume and how you manipulate it, distribute it across the week, what kind of modalities to use to get that volume, uh, there's much more contention that way and more more variation. But you need to uh, hit a certain amount of volume for each muscle group, basically, because we know that the primary stimulus for muscle growth, for muscle hypertrophy to occur, is mechanical tension on the muscle fibers. Mm. And that initiates a cascade of anabolic signaling that ultimately results in the muscle getting bigger via increased protein synthesis, muscle protein synthesis. So th- that process, that, that is the very fundamental adaptation that we're targeting. Mechanical tension on the muscle fibers is the means to achieve that. And the only way to to get enough tension, enough time, on tension, enough total tension, is by getting a certain amount of volume in over time. Otherwise, we see in a lot of studies that you simply don't... Um, you simply don't progress. Even if you, for example, you don't cross the minimum threshold of volume you need for progression, then you're just you're building a little muscle, losing a little bit of muscle, and by next week, say training only once a week, then you're just back to where you started. And a lot of people experience this if they, you know, they're they're just kind of messing about in the gym, not training very hard, maybe one or two workouts. Then at some point, you just stop getting anywhere, and um, it, you just need to do more total work. And then we can talk about you know how best to do that. But priority number one is just doing enough hard work.
0: Okay. Well, actually, you you've pivoted to another another question, but I think that's perfect. So you're you're, you're saying prior, priority number one sufficient training volume. Now um, maybe we can we can create a distinction here. So I have pursued like personally, I have pursued escalating volume uh, through my kind of training career, uh, and I got quite obsessive about, you know, progressive overload, a function of that is just more volume, uh, more work volume. And I kind of got slapped around a little bit by Paul Carter. And I think it was right. Uh, he was saying like, you know, this, this idea that people are just pursuing volume for volume sake, he said, he said, it doesn't logically, he, he can't support it logically, this idea of ever increasing volume. Um, and he said, there's a difference between, you know, hard, valuable sets and junk volume. And I think if I'm honest, I may have been Mm -hmm. doing some junk volume with the desire just to just generally do more work, right? That overall kind of volume load. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, because I'd anticipate if you just done body weight exercises and you just continue to do more and more and more and more and more of those, that wouldn't necessarily provide the level of adaptation you're looking for.
1: Yeah, I don't think increasing training volume is a good way to implement progressive overload. Um, That actually reveals a fundamental misunderstanding of what progressive overload is, because progressive overload, a lot of people have the idea that progressive overload is, is the stimulus for muscle growth, but it's not. It's the measure. Your training session is the stimulus for muscle growth. And then the fact that you're stronger the next session, allowing you to implement progressive overload, so the fact that you can implement it by increasing the weight or doing more repetitions, is the measurement that you have adapted to the previous session, which tells you a lot of positive things and is crucial uh, to know if you want to optimize your program because it means, A, that you have recovered because um, after a training session, there is fatigue, strength goes down, after we start, super compensation, and strength goes back up to beyond baseline. Mm. So the fact that your strength is now higher means that A, you have recovered, and B, you have super compensated, which is really useful to know because if you're doing too much volume, for example, you may not recover in time, and you may not see that strength increase. And that's also what you're, the problem that you're going to run into if you're just going to increase the volume too much. You're not going to recover anymore, and if you're not recovering, then you're you're not going to grow. You're just constantly stuck in a sort of flux where you're only barely repairing your muscles from each workout, and you're not allowing actual net new muscle growth to occur. And the the idea of progressive overload is is therefore that it's it's not the stimulus, it's it's the measure. So that that is a very big paradigm shift for uh, I think a lot of people because a lot of older textbooks still state you know progressive overload is what you need to do to get bigger now it's progressive overload allows you to tell that you're getting bigger and it ensures sufficient training efforts because if you're not training with the goal of progressive overload in mind then a lot of people simply don't train hard enough they are just get they're going to get complacent pretty much everyone if you don't have concrete targets in the gym there are very few people that really are willing to push out you know, that last extra rep that you, that you can now do and you could not do the last session, which means that this workout is less intensive than the one before. And the next workout, if you don't do an additional rep, is going to be even less intensive. And that's the reason, for example, why uh, you can only get so big from doing push-ups because you are limited in the amount of load that you can put uh, on the muscles. And if you're just going to do sets of 30 um, or however many reps you do, it's the same stimulus. It's going to be easier and easier as you adapt to it. So you need to implement progressive overload to maintain the same relative stimulus for muscle growth. And if you do that, you don't need to actually increase the training volume up until the point that you are decidedly more advanced and your muscles can actually handle and recover from more volume. So how do you define, um,
0: effective
1: volume? Yeah, so that's, a uh, uh, um, very, uh, contentious topic. Uh, <laughs> these days, there is a, there is a popular idea of called, um, which actually dates back to Berger Fagli that has seen a, a resurgence over the last couple of years of um, effective reps. And it's a nice concept, but it, it it gives the idea of some reps being effective and some reps being not effective. And Berger Fagli, when he first proposed this idea, a Norwegian strength coach, friend of mine, he, he was very clear that it's a continuum and it's at least related to the amount of total motor unit recruitment, so the total amount of muscle fibers in the muscle that you are recruiting. You need to reach a certain proximity to failure, which, based on the latest data, seems to be about eight reps to failure. And at that point, you get full motor unit recruitment, which means all of the muscle fibers in the muscle are being exposed to tension. And it's especially those later, the larger motor units, which have more fast-twitch muscle fibers that have... For one, the most muscle fibers, and also um, the biggest and strongest ones, which have the greatest potential for muscle growth, the type two muscle fibers. So it's very important to get within that that range that you can target those muscle fibers which are not exposed to much loading in daily life and have the greatest potential for growth. But that happens very uh, at a relative continuum, and also the total amount of tension that's imposed on the muscle can still rise via, for example. Uh, an increase in rate coding, the the speed at which the motor uh, units and the muscle fibers are being recruited. So the fact that they are being recruited doesn't mean they are being maximally recruited yet. you can recruit them faster. Um but it is a it is a nice concept to to at least explain that the concept of junk volume, for example, if you're not within that range, the reps that you're doing aren't actually contributing enough mechanical tension on the muscle to to do anything. But, if you're using light weights, for example, that doesn't mean they're useless because they can serve as the, the primer reps for the later reps in the set. Uh, if you're using low intensity, for example, uh, to generate fatigue and re- lower the recruitment threshold of the higher threshold multi-units. So basically, if you're doing a set of 30 reps, uh, funny enough, in the last years, we've seen that you, on average, people actually get the same muscle growth as they do in a set of eight reps or so. So if you get a lot, bunch of people, and this holds for trained and untrained individuals, and you have them do, say, um, bench presses or leg extensions, something you can do for high reps, and one group does sets of 30 or 20, and the other group does sets of eight, then they're going to get the same growth, as long as they're both training equally close to failure. And that's because, in the end, they are getting the same level of recruitment and tension on the muscle fiber from each set. So it, it's, it's a nice concept in, in that regard, but... Um, the main message is more that you have to train with a certain intensiveness, you know, a certain proximity to failure, than that certain sets are just useless.
0: Yeah, uh, so one of the ways that uh, Christian Thibodeau explained it to me, and maybe you can key off this, he said, um, I'm going to probably get this slightly wrong, but he was saying, you know, over 80% of like that intensiveness of effort do you see, you know, maximal response from weightlifting? So he said, whilst you can pick up a, a weight which is maybe seventy percent of your one RM, uh, and with every rep you are fatiguing, right, by a couple of points, it gets um, perceptively harder with every rep, which we all know, right, as you as you work out. So he's mm. saying that you have to get to the kind of threshold of, say, eighty percent of perceived relative intensity and at which that at which point that's when you are maximally recruiting as you've said maximally recruiting both the combination of fatigue and the combination of uh, motor unit kind of uh excitation that's when things are really happening so in his eyes yes you can do any any set of what any um overall load but it's only once you've got that kind of perceived effort of 80 percent plus where things are really starting to happen and therefore Um, when you combine that with perhaps doing too much volume, which might then create too much stress and create too much of a kind of catabolic uh, counter to the anabolic effect you're trying to go for, his position or his latest position is managing your volume down for the, the the minimal dose to get the maximum result. In his eyes, was a more effective strategy of providing you with a net anabolic effect. Um, I don't know if I've got that completely right, probably got a few things wrong there, but do you agree with that mm-hmm. sentiment? Uh, do you want to correct anything I've said or just kind of put a new different kind of spin on it?
1: I mean, I agree with the, the fundamental uh, idea that is, um, I'm not sure how he defines the 80%, but um, I think that the number uh, is close to at 80% of 1RM in terms of intensity. Um we we see full mode recruitment, so that that is about the point where you know the magic sort of starts happening, and uh, it's also the last eight reps or so to failure where you're you're at that same level. So hmm. um, I, I would be I would be very clear though, to, to define it as reps to failure or intensity because if you define it as like relative effort, it may suggest that you're you're looking at like relative perceived exertion like RPE scale, hmm. and then eighty percent actually means two reps to failure. Which is very close to failure and you definitely don't need to go that close for a set to be uh, effective. Like there has been research for example where they compare groups going to failure and groups staying about five reps away from failure and just doing more sets to make up the same total tonnage and they get the same results. So it's definitely volume is key and uh, the training effort as long as you're you're getting close enough is is definitely secondary. So um, the, the stimulus-to-fatigue ratio, uh, to borrow uh, a concept from uh, Mike Isretel, uh, junk volume is from Mike Isretel as well, by the way, is um, um, actually shows that if you get very close to failure, you do say one set to failure compared to, um, say, two sets further away from failure, you're going to get a better ratio of uh, stimulus-to-fatigue with the set staying away from failure. Because if you go to failure, there is an exponential increase in the total um, amount of neuromuscular fatigue and especially due to metabolic stress and exponentially rising blood ammonia levels mm-hmm. which is neurotoxic in the brain and we also see that if you take a set to failure the, the recovery time of that can increase by a factor of days even whereas if you just add one set that's say five reps away from failure it doesn't actually um, make that much of a difference so you're actually better off in terms of recovery capacity staying a bit further away from failure and not going like balls out and getting the volume in than if you for example do yates style high intensity uh training it's
0: it's funny man because um there 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 are just so many different perspectives aren't there on how to how to elicit muscle growth and um i, I can't help but to thing that as I say, there's some universal concepts, everyone's nodding their head, and any, any leader in this space is going, yeah, you know, we all agree on these things. But the how to is quite often different. Um, let's mm. talk about another, another aspect. It's related. Let's talk about intensiveness generally, and how heavy is optimal. So um, when you think about either preferred rep ranges, or how you should be thinking about weight selection to elicit know the, the strongest response in any given session we'll get to we'll get to frequency and that kind of stuff in a second but when it comes to intensiveness and percentage of one rm does it does it not matter can you choose whatever you want and just train hard enough
1: or do you think the weight itself is important uh, it definitely matters especially practically and uh, there are a couple other considerations and purely the the direct muscle growth but for muscle growth it actually doesn't matter so much so the the traditional bro science idea was that sort of six to 12 reps is the the hypertrophy zone and that's where you get optimal growth but if you go too heavy uh, you're mainly just going to get strength and if you go too light then you're going to get endurance adaptations but then there is some truth to that but it seems the zone is more one to thirty reps as long as you're getting a lot of volume in. The only problem with, if you go really heavy, like if you do singles, for example, is that you're not getting enough volume. Mm-hmm. So if you're going above around 85, 90% of 1RM, then you probably need to do additional sets to make up enough total uh, training tonnage and get enough time and tension. Uh, but there's no reason inherently why a heavy weight would in any way be inferior for muscle growth than a lighter weight because a heavier weight means more mechanical tension on muscle fibers, so therefore a greater stimulus for growth. You just need to do enough of those reps to get the same effect. And that's very impractical because if, for example, you wanted to get enough volume in with, with singles, you know, it's quite impractical to do 20 singles for, for different exercises. Your, your workout's going to take forever and you're going to get injured very, very quickly. I agree.
0: So, so do you, do you have a preferred, oh let's say preferred rep range? Is it, do you guide when you program, do you guide within a kind of certain window of reps to be able to get the benefit of both getting stronger and also getting enough volume in, where's your kind of sweet spot if you had to call one?
1: I don't think there's so much a a sweet spot, especially not at a population level. Um, I usually use intensities uh, based on uh, percentage 1RM because there is some research suggesting that that may help um, with individual differences. So some people, women, for example, can generally do more reps at 80% 1RM or below uh, than men. And there's also some research suggesting that women do better on um, higher rep kind of training. One study even finding greater muscle growth, though it was a really poor study. Um, but um, also for practical reasons, it helps with people uh, that are better at certain rep ranges, that they also uh, tend to be more motivated to perform in those and have an easier time with progressive overload. There's also some research. Uh, one study on rugby players, and one study by Quaglu, or however, however you pronounce it, I think 2005, uh, where they, they looked at different rep races as a function of which genotype people had, the ACE genotype specifically, like IIDD or ID. And they found that people with the more fast twitch muscle type um, genotype tended to respond worse or not as well to higher numbers of sets. And people that have more the, the slow twitch muscle fiber type. Um, they, they tended to respond better to higher rep ranges. And actually, there was a trend for them to gain more strength on the higher reps, whereas most people generally gain more strength the higher the intensity, because strength development is very tightly correlated with total muscle or maximum muscle activation, because mechanical tension is basically the primary stimulus of muscle growth. And you you could say muscle activation is sort of the primary stimulus for um, neural adaptations, which is the, the bulk of strength other than just size of the engine, like how big your muscles are. So... Um, I like to use intensities that way. And as long as you're, you're then in the, the range of 85 to, to 30% of one RM, um, the injuries of, or the considerations of where you, where you go is more how injury susceptible is the exercise is the exercise, um, does it lend itself well to higher reps? And probably most importantly, you want to have uh, a divergence of rep ranges for each muscle group. Cause there are a couple studies. Uh, not so well supported by the literature on underlying prioritization, but a couple studies, two by Brad Schoenfeld, uh, one Russian um, mechanistic study showing that high and low reps may activate different growth pathways and may have slightly, um, um, you, you could say, um, slightly different uh, effects on how how they cause muscle growth, even though it, it probably ultimately all uh, descends into the same uh, signal. And therefore, it's possible that if you do high and low reps, you're going to get better total muscle growth than if you just stick with one rep range. And it's also much easier on your joints, and it may help you distribute the amount of fatigue because you're getting, you know, more metabolic fatigue with higher reps and um, um, more other neuromuscular fatigue with lower rep ranges. So there's also a couple practical considerations to use a variety of rep ranges
0: and I, I would agree anecdot- anecdotally that i enjoy um whether whether it supports muscle growth or not i guess i enjoy some level of uh, dup some some level mm. of um you know some heavier work combined with um some more accessory work or just generally higher rep work um, i feel that you know i get that kind of neural adaptation that I'm looking for that ability to command my cns to go lift heavy and at the same time I'm getting in the volume um have say you know the eight plus reps and for me that just it, instinctively it seems to suit my it suits me I feel like as if I get a good workout I feel like as if I've covered exercised uh, I kind of covered all the bases uh, mm-hmm. is that roughly what you're saying are you suggesting that a uh, some form of DUP, or not necessarily D, like necessarily um, periodizing across sessions, but at least within the session, experiencing multiple rep ranges on a given muscle group, there's there's probably some merit to that.
1: Yeah, I'm also definitely a fan of uh, daily undulating periodization, although the literature indicates it's, it's probably not so directly effective for muscle growth, but it does help for strength development. And over time, that may help with muscle growth because it allows you to get more attention on the muscle fibers, mm-hmm. possibly, uh, and reach... Higher levels of muscle activation, um, mostly for untrained individuals, uh, novice-level lifters. But uh, any bit may still help in more uh, advanced lifters over time. Uh, but I was, I'm was i mostly uh, referring to if you use different rep ranges for different exercises. For, so, for example, for the quads, you may want to use a uh, type of setup that I commonly use is like 85% on something like high bar squats, and then 75% for something like Bulgarian split squats, and then 60% of 1RM for unilateral leg extensions. So that's a really good combination of exercises, I feel, because you have you have unilateral, you have open kinetic chain, closed kinetic chain, uh, and then you're, you're covering the whole, the whole spectrum of rep ranges. So you're gonna get, uh, you can even some phases go like super light and like 30% of 1RM possibly use blood flow restriction to stimulate uh, more type one muscle fibers. And then go even as high as 90% with the squats, because you're not going to do 30% with squats. That's just uh, inhuman. I think very few people can. Yeah, (laughs) very few people. It just turns into cardio, and almost nobody can muster the effort to do true like above 12. 12 RM is probably the max for most people, uh, before you just want to… It just gets boring, um, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's it's in between boring and wanting to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, 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 so. yeah. I, I
0: used, to, I, I, I've done periods of like twenty twenty rep squats, back squats, and I mean I can do it, just it's not fun. Really yeah
1: isn't. they call them they call them widow makers for a reason <laughs>
0: yeah damn right damn right okay so we we're covering uh, we've covered the the kind of volume piece we spoke a little bit about junk volume we spoke a bit about effective reps and you know whether or not that's a a, a good theory or not. Uh, we spoke a bit about intensiveness and you know weight selection and what I'm getting from you is you know covering your base is probably a good thing uh, but you know spending too much time in strength is just not going to get you the volume and we need to think about volume good. Uh, effective volume. And Mm -hmm. we've touched on periodization, at least within the session. So talk to me a bit more about general kind of program changes and uh, kind of phased periodization. So more the kind of Olympic lifting or um, performance based periodization. Does that have merit within a general Joe looking to just develop their physique? Do they need to be thinking about Every four to six weeks, one sufficiently changing their program with loads of different exercises uh, with loads of different kind of angles, et cetera, and then two, do they need to be thinking about uh, periodizing their rep schemes across the mesa cycle, or is that more of a performance uh, kind of programming design than a just general hypertrophy
1: design yeah, honestly not much, especially for for average Joe just looking to get big. Uh, you know, look great naked, it, it, it doesn't really matter so much. Most of these things are, are more for tapering, off-season, in-season practices, athletes that have to balance the, the competing muscular adaptations of endurance versus power versus strength, for example, you know, rugby players and the like. Then those things matter. Purely for muscle growth, researchers by and large found that no periodization technique uh, actually aids muscular development. And like like I said, daily underlaying periodization is is the best of the bunch, by far. Uh, so that that's that's what I'd use when when you can no longer progress linearly. I'm a big fan of daily underlaying periodization. It's just really effective and practical. Uh, and there's no need to get super fancy with it. I think honestly, most most PTs and coaches that go for the super fancy periodization, it's more marketing. It's more especially towards your clients, you know, gives you an idea that you can see into the future. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you have this whole complicated, uh, I dare say convoluted scheme with how reps go in the next sessions. And you have the plan laid out for the next half year. Uh, Great fancy program, several spreadsheets needed. Nobody understands what the hell a program means unless they they have you to coach you through it, uh, which is great as a coach. But um, uh, yeah, it really won't achieve much. In fact, the general trend in research now is that all this fancy long-term planning uh, is inferior to auto-regulating. And it's much more important to, to go by the individual's per session recovery capacity. Look how well you have recovered at this point, how strong you are now, and how, how many reps you can do now. And use that. And based on that, use things like reactive deloading. Is a method I use is to, to deload when you have an indication that you are under-recovered rather than a set deload, you know, one week off every four weeks or so. Because you don't know When you'll need that you don't know when you're not going to sleep as well as you normally do you don't know when you're going to veer off track with your diet you can predict it you know a little bit but not perfectly so the the general trend is definitely more towards actually less long-term planning and less convoluted schemes and just more practical uh individualized programming
0: yeah you need you need a a level of i guess gym iq and you know, practice and intuition as an individual to start mm. understanding when your body needs a break or when to pull back. Because, you know, our egos are strong, right? You know, when we've got a plan, you know, whether whether the plan f- instinctively feels good or not, you know, you still think, I'm going, this is what I'm supposed to do today. You know, I've got I've mm-hmm. got to do these exercises, this reps, this is what I done last week. I've got to beat, you know, last week's effort. And and it's it's easy for your ego to take over and say, I'm not listening to anything else. I don't care you haven't had enough sleep. I don't care that it doesn't feel great today. We're just gonna go for it. And I you know what? I think we're very um uh, I think we've got a lot of capability. We can kind of dig deep when we need to, but it's not always the best strategy. So I think what you're saying there, like that ability to understand your recover your recovery, I think it takes a bit of time. Uh, do you agree? Do you think that's a kind of learned uh, intuition and understanding of your body? Or do you think people can get there pretty quickly?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it helps a lot for sure, especially with injuries and the like. Um, I, I do rely... Mostly again on data rather than uh, someone's subjective assessment, uh, especially the, someone's strength at a certain level. Because if you, if you look at like general adaptation syndrome, like I said, after the session, you're, you're going to get neuromuscular fatigue. You're going to dip below your baseline strength level. And then it's going to at some point come back up. So you can sort of tell theoretically based on the two time points that you have, uh, one session strength and the other session strength, how likely it is that you have either under or uh, overtrained. And based on that, you can um, adjust your training volume or even do like an, an on-the-spot ad hoc uh, reactive deload. Uh, but I think it's definitely important to have um, objective guidelines um, to, of, of data points to go by because, you know, they're, they're, they're very big individual differences. Like you say, some people uh, are prone to to over uh, commit and basically uh, some clients that I have, I'm, I'm, I feel like my job as a coach is mostly pulling on the reins <laughs> rather than uh, actually... You know, okay, yeah. e- enabling them and other other clients. Yeah, you need the uh, you need the stick rather than uh, or you need the carrots rather than the stick. I'm not, well, I'm not sure what what analogy you that that's best in. More like uh, you don't need to pull on the range; you need to uh, use the stick. No carrot involved. Yeah. But um, <laughs> uh, other than um, yeah, anyway. Do you do you, um, do you
0: use HRV? Uh, you talk about objective measurement. What I'm hearing is is the person getting stronger, or are they doing more reps within their kind of heavy lift? Heavy, hmm. I'm I'm talking relative to, you know, where they're at. So, you know, are they getting stronger? Are they able to do more within that same weight? Um, I guess that's probably the, the the key metric. But do you use HRV or any other kind of recovery evaluation technique?
1: No, funny enough, there's um, this is one of those things where you would think that uh, uh, you get sci-fi gadgets that can help with this. But there's been a lot of research into recovery. And basically the conclusion is that the only thing that actually a good measure of recovery is your actual performance, which is, you know, the, the most direct measure. I think work capacity and objective RM strength are best. And anything else has basically failed to to predict performance. And HRV has, has failed horribly in the last three studies um, that have been done on this. It really doesn't predict much at all. In fact, it's it, looking at your HRV is basically like looking at your horoscope to see if it's time to squat. Do you know what? And it's it's funny because you you hear some people that
0: have really lent in on and specialised in H R V, and they swear by it. They feel it's a, one of the best predictors to overall kind of health and well being, and we should be mindful of it. Um, mm-hmm. I I don't know. I don't know where I sit on that at the minute. I, you know, th- science might take a while to catch up with the validity of it, or we might be just kidding ourselves. But what I will say to some degree is, you know, I wear an aura ring, and there is definitely some correlation between how good I feel. And what ends up happening in the gym, and the the aura the ring score and HRV, there is some correlation. That being said, I, mm. I, I, I seldom do I pay do I let it in, inform my activity. Maybe I should, but I go. Oh, I've got a low HIV. I'm going to train anyway. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I, I wonder if the, you know the science is going to catch up with some of the people that you know swear by this being, you know, the gold standard of understanding if we're ready to train and ready to generally perform well in life.
1: There's a very good explanation for why there's a, a perceived correlation within individuals, and that's also what I've experienced very strongly in my clients. Um, is that one placebo and nocebo effects? combined with confirmation bias and uh, selective memory, which is a very well-established psychological phenomena. Basically, when you look at your HRV in the morning and it says, uh, your is going to suck, then mm-hmm. you're already demotivated. You go to the gym, you, know, you, you give it a half-assed effort, and your session indeed sucks. And then it's like, HRV was right. And the next time, it's going to be even worse. Because then when now, it's, oh yeah, it's definitely going to suck. And when HRV says, session is going to be awesome then you're all you know revved up ready to go you're going to give it maximal effort and if you do generally you'll find that yeah your performance is is pretty good so if you combine that with uh the idea that if you already believe in something it's much easier to to pick those um those out of your memory and you know ignore the ones where hrv wasn't too good but the session was actually okay and i also seen a lot of clients that um, their subjective assessment of the session does not correlate with performance. So especially, for example, when people are injured, it really gets them down and they'll come like, I have a really bad session, I know, and look at their data and it's like, so the first exercise they did, uh, they got some pain and everything else progressed perfectly, but the first session they were just down and then they, they didn't really pay attention to the fact that everything else really went well. The, you know, they, they were hurting and the, the first session, the start of the session was not good. So in their mind, the session was sort of ruined. There's also times when, especially after overeating, people are really prone to tell themselves like, oh, now I'm better recovered. And uh, yeah, that meal, okay, maybe it wasn't too good. Yeah, I did gain two pounds. But uh, at least I got great workouts in. And this is, this was definitely much better in the gym performance-wise than the last week. And if you look at the objective data, well, progress was basically the same. It was just like any other week.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think we all struggle with, I know I struggle with, the uh, uh, just n- being in a funk. Right, you know, being mm. in a mental funk, whether it's mental fatigue or you're just a little bit stressed out, or just for whatever reason you're not particularly motivated, but you go anyway, and um, you know that, that kind of suck factor can either ruin your workout, or more often than not, for me, in spite of that, once I get going, I still have a good workout. I still progress, or at least match the performance of last week. So we're complicated species. We really are. I mean, we 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 assume mm. we can do we're not going to do shit and we end up doing just as good. Now, what does that tell us? Does that mean that we're just tired and we need more sleep and mentally we're a bit too fatigued or are our muscles actually fatigued and unable to perform? Uh, I think the jury's out a little bit on that. Look, I want to, I want to transition. So now we haven't got much longer. I want to transition to frequency. Mm. So frequency for the audience, I'm talking specifically around how frequently do you train a given muscle group? Uh, some people refer to frequency of how often do you train certain exercises, for the most part, it's how often are you're gonna attack, for example, your chest or your quads. um I know you've done some research in this, you've looked at some papers as well. um what's your overall position on this in terms of optimal frequency
1: if you can program it well? yeah, I mean, I'm known as the high frequency guy, which is now you know sort of sort of getting popular high frequency training, and there there has been more and more research, or actually I would say. It was initially promising research, and then it was way out there, and I started doing full-body workouts every day. And a lot of people are like, that's crazy, you cannot do it. Um, but now a lot of people have seen the results, and I've seen that it actually does work really well. And i have been a couple papers, starting with the, uh, the infamous Norwegian Frequency Project, where they put the Norwegian powerlifting team on the exact same programs performed in either three workouts or six workouts. So they split them up, basically, uh, two, three long full-body workouts, just cut them in half. And did them six times, which means they were exercising every muscle group in their body almost every single day. And bodybuilders would be like, Oh, that's heresy, that's crazy, that no human being could do that. But funny enough, you know, if you look at other other realms like like gymnasts or Olympic weightlifters, the ideal full body workouts every single day is is completely normal. If if you tell them like, I have this crazy new idea, I'm gonna do full body workouts every single day. And they're like, Yeah, we've been doing that for the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, it really, uh, you know, the, the bro science idea of training a muscle once a week has been very thoroughly debunked as being optimal. There's a lot of research now showing that you probably can't get enough volume in, uh, and you need at least two workouts. And the most debate is, is there a benefit to doing more than two workouts per week per muscle group? And I think there are some benefits and it's mostly mediated by being able to do more, more reps. So getting more volume and getting higher, um, Higher stimulus-to-fatigue ratio. So some research showing, for example, that the testosterone-to-cortisol ratio of people is better if they do higher-frequency training. That um, muscle activation levels are higher, which makes sense because you spend more time training in an unfatigued state. You know, if you do like typical bro splits and you do like chest flies after you done, after you did three variations of the bench press and the dumbbell bench press and then the machine chest press, then by the time you you're you're doing flies, what can you still lift? What, what level of you know effort? Uh, Can your your muscles still muster? It's not going to be a lot of mechanical tension. It's not going to be a lot of muscle activation. The level of neuromuscular fatigue is way too high. So say you put half those exercises on their own separate day, then you can perform a lot more repetitions. They're going to achieve higher levels of muscle activation, more mechanical tension on the muscle fibers. It makes sense that they should grow a bit more. Now, it's a pretty small difference as long as you're getting the total volume in, uh, which in practice is generally also much harder if you're doing like one or two workouts especially one workout, it's, it's just not going to be very feasible to, to get the optimal volume in. So uh, I think in practice, there, there is definitely a big, uh, or not a big, but a small advantage to, uh, to higher frequency training above twice a week. And you can even go up to full body every day. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit more hesitant than the beginners, because uh, there's for some, some beginners, there's, there's no such thing as an effective training volume that's also uh, doable every single day. You know, even like one hour set in an untrained individual may already be too much. It's not, it's not something you, you can do again the next day. Mm.
0: I mean, I, I would say I'm beyond, you know, the, the beginner status. I I'd, I'd put myself in a kind of middle, middleish ish um, status of kind of a training career. I've been training for quite a while. And I would say, given my training intensity, I wouldn't be able to do chest two days in a row based on how I train now mm. i know if you train differently you could i, I know you could I've, i have had stints of low, lower lower exertion everyday training um it just feels a little bit boring but when i go balls to the wall like probably probably trying to work out um i couldn't repeat that or at least my body doesn't it doesn't feel like as if it's the right thing to do to go do that the same you know the same thing the next day so for me i need i need the day off uh, between hitting that same muscle group. Um, do you think that's fair? Because obviously there is a recovery aspect of this, right? There's both the net protein synthesis and there is you know, the micro-tear repair. And given the intensity, mm-hmm. um, you're going to need more or less time. Um, and I know that these are all inversely related, so you can't look at any one thing and say frequency in isolation. You have to understand the entirety of the workout. Um, but in terms of your own program design and what you'd recommend your clients... Um, are, are you looking for a, a sweet spot of say two to three times a week on a given muscle group depending on what their preferences are or what their lagging body parts are? Or would you opt for
1: almost every day full body but lower intensiveness? I go three times a week minimum almost, uh, often four plus and quite often full body every single day if someone is training every single day, which is of course a certain uh, subset of the population. Uh, and it, it, I think the key is in, in learning to program high frequency because when I started, Bergen, and Fragli, and I, I think we were the first in the sort of the bodybuilder realm that started experimenting with this about 10 years ago. Um, and uh, which was right around the time that a lot of these findings were actually first published. And we were, we were funny enough, we're, uh, one of those papers was published. We were speaking about that in Norway at that exact time. And the paper was launched. We are like, okay, we're, we're onto something. Um, but we both started experimenting with this. And my original impressions were actually like, okay, this high-frequency stuff, uh, Berge, I don't I don't see it working. In my clients and then we we compared programs and we we found out that a lot of things i was uh doing a lot of pitfalls i had in my programs uh they were the reason that it wasn't working very well so i think a lot of people that try high frequency a lot of pitfalls are repeating the same exercise too often so you you do hit the same muscle but you wanted a a non-competing stimulus as much as possible so for example you don't want to do squats and then the next day squats like squats every day by by Matt Pyramid that that had its had its popularity and it can work for powerlifters and Olympic weightlifters but the reality for most people is you you get injured fast so I don't think that's the way you need like high intensity squats followed the next day by low intensity blood flow restriction leg extensions something like that that can work well and then you also you know you're looking at undulating the rep ranges having different exercises and also stimulating different muscle fibers. For example, um, in, in one session you may do, uh, let's say you're doing two different bicep curls, then you want something like uh, a Scott biceps curl that emphasizes the, the muscle and the muscle fibers that are most active in the most lengthened position. And then the next day you want more something like a regular bicep curl, which emphasizes, or even a drag curl, which emphasizes the muscle fibers that are most active in the fully contracted position. And then because of the length-tension relation, you're you're emphasizing different muscle fibers. And you have much less overlap in the type of fatigue uh, that you're inducing. So I think that, that is definitely crucial, uh, plus managing the total volume. Because if you say you've you got a bro split and you just double up the volume because you double the frequency, that won't work. So that the reason that a lot of people think that they're doing a workout once a week, they can't do it again. is because, well, you can't do that workout again. You have yeah. to cut it, the volume at least in half you know, so uh, it definitely takes some uh, so, some mastery to to make it work. But I think then it's it's slightly more optimal uh, for most people.
0: I like that. I like that. I'm currently on a kind of push-pull leg or a a push-pull regime where legs are built into that as well. And I, I mm-hmm. seem to enjoy that. And that's, you know, it's not full body, but you know, I'm doing a lot of muscle parts per day. I'm just undulating between, you know, the push kind of push-pull style. I'm really enjoying that. And I'm doing that six times a week for the most part. But like you, I'm also known when to reactively pull back. You know, if I'm feeling really sore, really just fucked up, I'll just I'll just mm-hmm. skip a day and and not, not beat myself up about it. I've loved this session, uh, Menno. I think you've discussed a lot. I mean, you've answered a lot of questions. You've also put a lot of questions out there too, because clearly we're, we're still trying to thread this needle. Is there anything else, uh, as we kind of close up on this, is there anything else around this discussion that you would have hoped I would have asked that, the guys need to hear just kind of wrap a bow around this uh
1: not really um i think you did a good job um you know we we touched on a lot of uh different topics give people uh, a bit of a a primer on uh different topics and uh if they want more information uh you know they they can look it up at both our uh, platforms
0: absolutely and do you want to just plug where people can find you? Menno, I know you've changed your website recently. You're available um, through social media. Do you want to just kind of share out your handles and your main website?
1: Sure. Uh Mostly on uh, Instagram and Facebook. And uh, Steve will probably put the uh, the links in the handle because you probably can't pronounce or spell my name, which True. is fine because it's, it's Dutch. And um, you'll find everything there. Um, if you want an introduction to sort of my most popular contents, then go on my homepage, there's a free email course that you can opt in and they'll get a lot of uh, stuff that is basically the content I've produced over the years that has been most well-received and most popular. So that's probably a good starting point if you want to uh, get familiar with my work. And do you have like
0: a template, you know, uh, example workout that demonstrates your kind of high frequency or, or everyday type training so, if, so people can start getting their head around the kind of concept you, you're speaking about? I don't,
1: um, and that's uh, very deliberate because I'm, uh, I'm a big proponent of uh, individualized program design uh, and no cookie cutter programs. So uh, I, I'll give people the principles uh, to make it work, and then you have to apply those principles to yourself as an individual. Mm. I think that is that is the most effective method. Because if you if I just give a program, I find that most people they just follow it and don't know why you're doing it that way, and th- that's not very educational.
0: Oh, I totally agree. No, no, it's been a true pleasure. I'm going to let you crack on with the rest of your day. I know you've got other things going on. Um, hopefully we can keep in touch. I'll get this out very shortly. Um, I will share it with you so you can share with your audience too. And yeah, thanks once again for the chat. Uh, maybe we can do a part two on a, on a deeper dive in some other area in due course.
1: Great, will do. And uh, let me know when you share it and I'll be sure to share it as well. You're a star, man. I appreciate that. Great. Nice talk to you, Steve. <laughs>
0: Ooh, I did like that you know it was shorter than the rest of our podcasts but it was just as impactful. Mano managed to condense so much of his wisdom when it comes to training into that one hour. I hope you enjoyed it please make sure you follow him and you know continue to keep up with his research and his understanding of muscle building. Now guys I do have a super quick plug be your best self optimization journey which is a online course of sorts focused on personal development but more around holistically running your life and being your best well that launched in december and so far we have had a reasonable uptake the feedback however has been phenomenal now the only way we're going to get the word out here is by people listening to this show at least checking out the website seeing what the product is what the service is clicking through some of the links, look at the PDF planner. And if you like it, spread the word. It's through word of mouth and through great experiences that this unique service, this enablement of you leading your best life through inspirational daily education, how that will get to the people that actually need it. So if you like the sound of it, I would encourage you to sign up. It's got a 14 day money back guarantee. So there is no questions asked if for whatever reason you need to pull out. But I'm telling you, These 100 days could transform your life. These 100 days could enable you with that instruction manual for life, that guidebook for life that, you know, quite frankly, does not exist in one place. And as a little thank you to our podcast listeners, within the show notes, you do have a coupon code for some money off. Okay, that's my shameless plug done. Have a great rest of the week. I'm going to let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And, of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show.
1: Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adapnation.io or your favourite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.